You can take your Bibles, though, and open them to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2, please. Titus chapter 2. Uh, and uh, I'd like for us to, to have a word of prayer, and then we will get into um, the message this morning. And hopefully it will be profitable for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful again as we come to prayer. Thankful that you have given us your word. You've not left us without a witness. You've given us the scriptures that we can read, that we can understand. By them we know that you created the world with just your voice. By the word of God, we know that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be born of Mary, a young virgin, in a miraculous conception and birth that demonstrated your great power and your great wisdom. You sent your son to live as a man, but to live perfectly, that he might die in our place as the perfect and spotless lamb of God to take away the sins of the world and freely by his grace we have been justified declared righteous we are being sanctified being made righteous and one day we will be glorified when we see him face to face oh Lord we look forward to that day but here and now, we realize that you've called us to grow. And we ask that you'd help us this morning to do that. Help us to receive your word, that it might transform our lives. Help me as I speak to be clear, not to detract from your word, not to draw attention away, but simply to point to you. And I pray that you would receive all of the glory for all that is done in Jesus' name. Amen. Every evangelical woman knows what it's like to get the Titus II treatment. This happens whenever a woman is presented with a universal statement about the biblical role of women in the world. These are the opening lines of an internet post by Christian feminist Rachel Held Evans, author of the 2012 best-selling book, A Year of Biblical Womanhood. Evans continues in her post by explaining it, its title. She says, I call this the Titus 2 treatment because Titus 2.5 is one of the most commonly abused passages in this regard. Rachel Evans objects to the teaching that Titus 2 implies that women have a defined role in the home, especially with regard to domestic duties like washing dishes or doing laundry. As she concludes her post, she explains why she believes that she must warn against this Titus II treatment. Here's what she says. Don't forget that every day there are very real Christian women who are discouraged from pursuing ministry positions, dream jobs, or equal partnerships with their spouses because of how the Bible is used to manage and regulate women. Well, I don't really want to this morning engage Mrs. Evans in her views of Christian womanhood 
And there's a whole lot more on her blog than I'm sharing today. So I'm not trying to create a straw man that I can easily attack here. I'm just pointing this out to you. But I want to make it very clear that when we teach what the Word of God says, we are not using the Bible to, quote, manage and regulate women. Two weeks ago, I preached to the older men. And I said that as an older man in the congregation, you must be sober. You must be respectable. You must be of a sound mind. And I didn't say those things in order to manipulate the men to do what I wanted them to do. Last week, I preached to the older women. You know who you are. I just, sorry. <laughs> and I said that the older women are to live as though you belong to Christ and not as slanderers or alcoholics. I wasn't twisting the word of God in order to guilt the older women into serving in the nursery or something like that. When I stand before you and I explain what God's word says, what it means and how it applies to you and to me, I am encouraging you to live as God intends and to enjoy all that he intends for you to enjoy. So when we preach what the Bible says to younger women about your role in the home and in society, it's not using the Bible to manage and regulate you. It's calling you to shape your life, to shape your thoughts, your dreams, and your desires around the gospel calling that God has given you as a born-again follower of Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to look at a couple of verses here in Titus chapter 2, but I want you to remember as we do that, that Paul had established a pattern of ministry that Titus was supposed to follow, right? We talked about this the last two weeks. The pattern of ministry is very clear. In this case, especially among the women, the older women in the church were to be examples of consistent obedience to Christ, and they were to be teachers of good things. Those two things go together because no one wants to listen to a teacher who says, do as I say, not as I do. And you know that's true, right? Parents, it doesn't work for you to say to your kids, do as I say, not as I do. That doesn't work. Now, I will say, there are some prerogatives that come with being a parent. There are times when you can say, I'm the parent and therefore I get to do this. But when we're not talking about those things, my dad used to do that all the time when we were kids. We'd complain about something. Well, how come you get to do it? And he'd say, well, I'm the dad, and when you're the dad, you can do that too if you want to. Okay. Okay. That's not what we're talking about. My dad didn't tell a lie and then say, well, I'm the dad. I can do that. You're just a kid. Don't lie. No, that, that doesn't work. See, If you want to teach your kids to tell the truth, you have to tell the truth. If you want to teach your kids not to complain, you have to stop complaining. If you want to teach your kids... To, to respect authority, you've got to respect authority. Okay, don't, this is, you know, this, this is a simple principle, right? The same thing is true in the church. Older women, you have a responsibility to teach good things to the younger women, but your teaching must be consistent with your life. 
So you've got to set the tone by your godly behavior and then teach the younger ones. Look at what Titus says. The older women are to be teaching. Right? He ends verse 3 by saying that they are teachers of good things. And then he goes on in this next verse. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Now, as we consider these two verses here, verses 4 and 5, it's important for us to take note of the grammar that Paul uses here. Because in these two verses, what we have is we have two dependent clauses. Now, I hate doing this. I hate taking you back to, like, you know, school days. We've got to sit down and have grammar class here, right? But what this means is that verses 4 and 5 together are not a complete sentence. They don't stand on their own, right? They are dependent clauses. That means they hang on what came before them. The earlier instructions to Titus, beginning in verse 1, where Paul told Titus that he was to speak the things that are proper for sound doctrine. Titus, you're supposed to be teaching and preaching that which is good, that which is healthy, that which produces sound faith. And then, the older men are to be like this. The, the older women are to be like this. And then they're supposed to teach the younger women to be like this. And so it is, the, it is all flowing from Titus's responsibility. He's to teach the older men and the older women. They will in, teen, in turn teach the younger women how they ought to behave. And so... What this really means is that what we have done in breaking apart these verses and dealing with them over the course of three weeks is to do really to do a disservice to them. So I have to apologize. I've done a disservice to this text of Scripture and preaching it the way that I have. After we're done, you should go back and read all of it, and it's, it's supposed to be one thought. Right? It's one sentence. It's not broken apart, but we're breaking it apart just because... There's so much here, but the whole, the whole package fits together. This is a picture here of a functional church family. This is a picture of a functional church family. The pastor preaches the word of God and teaches the word of God faithfully. And then those who ought to be the most mature spiritually, that is the older men and the older women, they're built up in their faith. They're healthy. They're stable. They're consistent in godliness. And those mature believers then turn around and teach others to follow in their footsteps. That is how it is supposed to happen. That's a picture of a healthy church family. But what does that look like in the case of the younger women. Well, Paul gives us some explanations here. Take a look at what he says here in verse 4. The older women are to admonish the young women to what? He says to love their husbands. Love their husbands. The first two terms here actually, and, and then, then he says next, love their children. 
These are the two instructions there in verse 4. The, the two terms that he uses are very similar terms to each other, and it's really one word. Okay. Love their husbands is one word. It's husband-loving. Uh, love their children is one word, children-loving, okay. in the original language. That's how it's, how it's said there. It's one word that conveys this idea. Young wives, young women, love your husband. Love your husband, that's what he says. Love your husband. Does that instruction sound strange at all to you? Isn't it kind of natural for wives to love their husbands? Well, especially when they're young and they're newly married. Okay, well, a couple things we have to remember here about this, why Paul starts off with this particular instruction. Right? First of all, culturally, we're dealing with a very different cultural context. We always have to ask that question. What culture is this being spoken in? You see, in the first century, in this Eastern culture, uh, the idea of marriage here is very different. To, today, the idea of having an arranged marriage is a very foreign concept. But in their, in their culture, of the ancient world, and especially there in the, in the ancient East. All, almost all marriages were arranged. Women did not choose their husbands. And so I think you could see how Paul's instruction would apply to the women in the, in the churches of Crete. They'd been married to someone out, apart from their own choosing. It was some arrangement that the families made. It could have been arranged for a variety of different reasons, probably none of which had anything to do with how they felt about the other person. Until they find themselves married to a person, not of their own choosing, put in this situation, in this relationship, what are they supposed to do? Paul says, love your husband. But it's not just women in arranged marriages who need to learn how to love their husbands. One writer put it this way, love is not a mountain spring that bubbles up automatically. It takes work. It takes determination, especially in the context of the home and the family. And anybody who's been married for any length of time can tell you that. The feeling of love, the, 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 the early relationship uh, uh, is, is very different from the relationship as the years progress and time moves on. That relationship changes, but Paul says to these women, you are supposed to love your husband. Now, how is a young woman going to learn to love her husband? She's just going to have to muddle through and hope the marriage survives? I mean, you realize that, that in our day where a very large percentage of marriages end in divorces. It's not 50%, by the way. That's a mistake. Um, not first marriages, anyways. 50% is if you include all the marriages, but some people are, you know, are really good at that. They get married over and over again. Every one of those counts. So that number goes up, all right? First marriages, it's a higher success rate than that, but still, right? The first year is the most volatile, the most dangerous year for a marriage, always. Far more likely for a divorce to happen the first year than any time after that. So how do we help? How are we going to help young women who are 
embarking on this relationship of their life, this very new and, 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 and exciting and different situation in life, how are we going to help them? Well, older, older women in the church. You who have experienced this, you who have learned over the years what it means to love your husband, not because you feel you know, butterflies in your stomach when you look at him, which you know, at some point becomes more like in, it's more an indigestion than anything, right? <laughs> no, but, but you know that, right? Those, that the feeling of the infatuation is temporary and short-lived. But love is something different. It's something that takes work and determination. It takes courage to love someone. And you ladies who are older, you need to teach the younger women how to love their own husbands. He says the same thing about the relationship toward their children. Young women ought to learn to love their children Again, we might think this is automatic, that, that mothers fall in love with their babies from the first time they see them, or, or even before, as they wait through those months of expectation in pregnancy, looking forward, anticipating that day when, when the little one is going to be born, and we're going to see that baby and hold that baby, and, and all of the anticipation of that. And you think, man, certainly it's natural for a mother to love her children. But just as it takes work to love your husbands, ladies, it takes work to love your children. And you older women ought to be helping the young ones learn how it's done. On both of these scores, our society has gotten this turned around. No longer is a, is a, is a wife supposed to put her husband ahead of herself. She's supposed to negotiate terms with him so he doesn't ask too much of her. And no longer is a mother supposed to pour herself into caring for her children. Not if it means exclusion of her career or personal interests. No, what, we, what, what our society says today is that children are to serve as a trophy posted on social media so that other women can marvel at her awesomeness and despair at ever measuring up. That's not loving your children. Paul says, young women need to learn how to love their children. And they're going to learn it from the older women in the church who are going to teach them how to love their children. By the way, and that includes, that includes teaching the younger women how to discipline and train their children. Because that's love, right? We all know we all know children who are undisciplined, children whose mothers don't love them enough to establish boundaries, follow through on consequences, and make them do what they're supposed to do. That's not love. It's the opposite of love. So older ladies, that's what we need to be teaching to the younger ladies, the younger mothers in the church. Teach them to love their children and that includes teaching them how to discipline their children, teaching them how to train their children. 
these two terms in verse 4, I think really frame Paul's instructions here concerning the behavior and attitudes of young women in the church. So I think if we, as we look at verse 5, we've got to understand it in the context of verse 4. We have to reject the false substitutes that the world offers, the false priorities. Our world says, no, 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 these priorities are out of whack. Don't start with loving your husband and loving your children. Start by loving yourself. That's not what Paul says. You'll notice that's not on the list anywhere. We don't usually have a problem with that one. That one, we're, we're usually really good at that one naturally. Okay. No, we keep these priorities, husband loving and children loving in mind. And then we look here in verse 5 at the next qualities. There's two more qualities here that young women are supposed to learn from the older women in the church. Notice what Paul says, they're to be discreet and chaste. We could put it a different way. We could say, young ladies, you are to be of sound mind and be pure. You're to be of sound mind and be pure. The first word is the same one that Paul used back in verse 2, <clears throat> referring to the older men. The New King James translates it temperate. I said two weeks ago that that word means or it has the idea of stability, of strength, of immovability, and unchangeable. Paul tells the older men in verse 2 that, they, that, that, that through Titus's consistent teaching, the older men should be stable and steady. And then here in verse 5, he speaks to the younger women, or about the younger women saying that they need to be taught how to be stable and steady. And again in verse 6, he speaks to the young men and says the same thing. This is an important principle. They need to be stable and steady. Now one question you might ask, why doesn't he say this of the older women? Why does he just say it of the older men, the younger women, the younger men? If he's going to talk about it, if it's really that important, why not tell the older women? Shouldn't the older ladies in the church be stable and steady? Yes. Yes, you should be. That's a good thing. What's interesting here in verse 4, the beginning of verse 4, that word admonish there. You see that word? It's, it's a word in the same family group. It's from the same root as the word to be of sound mind. And it's almost as, as if Paul is saying to the older women, with your own sound-mindedness, make the young women sound-minded. You can't pass on a quality you don't have. So he is saying this of the older women as well. Women in the church, those of you who are older ought to be able to, to discern truth from error. And you ought to be firmly rooted in what is right and what is good so that you can help the younger women learn to tell what is right from what is wrong and learn to do what is right. That's what Paul has in mind here. Older women need to be this way so they can teach the younger women to be stable, to be steady, to know what's right and to do it and be consistent in it. That's the kind of behavior that Paul is saying that the young women need to learn from the older women in the church. Then he also says that the women are supposed to be chaste, pure, blameless, or innocent is the idea here. The word is used especially in the New Testament to refer to moral purity. And of course, 
It's especially important there in the first century because their society was extremely corrupt and immoral. Roman, the Roman society, if you know anything about it, was, was in, incredibly immoral and indulgent society. Well, let me tell you what, I got good news for you. Well, it might be good, it might be bad, depends on how you look at it. The world isn't getting any better, right? So, we need a commitment to purity. A commitment to this kind of blamelessness in the church today. Just, just as much as it did then. I say it's good news because it means this verse applies to us just as much today. This instruction to be pure is just as important and just as needful today as it was in the first century. We don't live in a better society. We don't live in a society where, they, where things are easier to live for the Lord, where it's easier to be pure. There are temptations everywhere. And if you think those things aren't in the church, they are just as much as they are in all the rest of society. But here's the question, where does that start? Where does, where does this commitment to moral purity begin in the church? Does it start with the young people? You know, I, I grew up in the church. I grew up in in youth group and I grew up in Sunday school and I grew up going to youth camps and different things and hearing all sorts of preaching and teaching and of course one of the popular themes that they would continue to teach to us as, as young people was the need for purity and I, I'm not denigrating that at all that's important to teach young people but I'm afraid sometimes we think that that's enough Sometimes we think that simply teaching young people, telling the kids in the youth group that you got to stay pure, that you can't, uh, you, you know, you can't be involved with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you can't, uh, you know, fool around and stuff. And you need to, you need to be pure. We got to tell them that. We should tell them that. But that's not where this starts. The pattern here is the older ones teach the younger ones. That means it has to start with the older ones. So who's going to set the tone? Who's going to establish the commitment to moral purity? It's got to be the older women and the older men in the church who demonstrate an example of discernment, who demonstrate an example of innocence and blamelessness when it comes to moral issues. We've got to start there. That's the, the model that Paul is advocating here, that older women would teach the younger women to be pure. But you can't teach what you don't know. So older ladies, you need to guard your hearts. The next admonition here is one that is often misunderstood and misapplied. It's the one that gets Rachel Held Evans and the other Christian feminists, it gets them a little stirred up, this principle here in verse 5. Paul says young women need to be kind homemakers. Need to be kind homemakers. That, that's really what I'm, I'm putting those two words together, homemakers and good. 
That word good, the idea of being kind, has to do with being productive or useful. That which is good is that which is useful, that which is valuable. The word that's translated homemaker emphasizes the idea of being diligent. What Paul is really saying here is that the the younger women need to learn to be diligent to be diligent in working that which is valuable and helpful to her family. She needs to be diligent in working, doing that which is helpful, that which is beneficial to her family. That's what he means when he says to be a kind homemaker here. Now some people have tried to use these words to suggest that it that a woman's place is in the home, that she shouldn't work outside the home. But that is really putting words in Paul's mouth here. The contrast he's making is not between women working in the home or women working outside the home. The contrast is between women working diligently at home or being lazy and self-indulgent. That's really the issue here. And so, young women, you are to be bringing value to your family doing good for them rather than just yourself. That's what he has in mind here. That's why there's an aspect of kindness here, because you're thinking about somebody else. You're not doing this for yourself. You're doing it for your family. That's the motivation here. But this instruction fits the previous one as well, where Paul said to be uh, uh, discreet and chaste, to be pure, you see, the danger is this, that if young women are not diligent and hardworking, then they'll become busybodies and undisciplined, giving in to temptation, even to the point of immorality. And this apparently was what was happening already in the city of Ephesus. We won't take time to turn there, but in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul speaks about this and warns Tim- or Timothy about this. He says that the widows there, the young widows, were idle, wandering about from house to house, that they were not only idle, but were also gossips and busybodies. So here's a question. What's the best way for a young woman, or for that matter, I would say a young man, to avoid the temptations of sexual immorality, of gossip, of slander, or selfish indulgence? Well, here i got a good solution for you. Be diligent at home. Work hard to do that which is good. That's what the older ladies ought to be showing and teaching the younger ones in the church. How to be diligent and work hard and so avoid temptation. Now Paul really steps in it then with what he says next. In verse 5 he says, Younger women, you need to be obedient to your husbands. Notice what he says, obedient to their own husbands. This is a volatile command. It's one that we usually either ignore as outdated or we try to explain it in some way that doesn't make us look like unsophisticated brutes. The problem with that is this is really, really clear and it's very, it's very hard to misunderstand what Paul is saying here. You've got to work at it. Paul is saying a wife needs to be obedient to her own husband. 
Now, a couple of observations that I want to make about that I think will be helpful. First of all, look at the two words that come before the word husbands here. What are they? Their own husbands. Those two words are very important. Their own. Paul is not teaching a general principle of gender roles. I use that term because I don't have a better one. Paul is not giving some gender principle or some some general principle of, of, of society that women are to be subservient to men. That's not what he's saying here. That is completely foreign to what he says. <clears throat> he's not saying that women are to be in submission to men in general. He's saying that a wife is to be obedient to her husband. Within the context of a relationship in, when a, in which a husband and wife have, have entered into lifelong covenant. Each one having made promises to the other to love, to respect, to honor, and to cherish. You see, it's in that relationship context of a marriage that a wife has a duty to submit to her husband. That needs to be remembered when we read this line. Paul does not say women submit to men. He says, wives submit to your own husband. That's one man. Out of all the men, the billions of men in the world, there's one. Your own husband. That's the one you're supposed to be submitting to, obedient to. The second point that I want to make, mention here, and it's, again, important to notice this, that Paul is not, uh, he is not uh, allowing... In, the, in this instruction, he's not speaking to the man at all, is he? He's not saying to the men, demand that your wife submit. He's not saying to the men, lord it over your wife, force them to submit. He's speaking to the women. Saying that the older women are to train the younger women how to live in obedience to their own husbands. This is not something for the husband to demand, it's something for the wife to offer. Now, at the end of the verse, Paul offers some explanation. We're, we're going to get into the real, the big explanation principle. Remember the why? That's still at the end of the chapter. We're going to get there. But he gives a little bit of an explanation here of why he's given these instructions. And his concern is primarily spiritual rather than practical. That doesn't mean, and I would say this, is not that having younger women in the church learn from older ladies about how to love their, their husbands and their children won't make for you know, happier families and a better society. I mean, there are, there are practical reasons why these are good instructions. Okay? A happy home is far better for the children, far better for uh, you know, the marriage, far better for your own health and sanity and everything else. Far better for society as well. We can make all sorts of practical arguments for these, but we don't have to. Because Paul's main concern here is a gospel concern. Notice what he says there at the end of the verse. That the word of God may not be blasphemed. The world is watching. The world is watching us as Christians to see how the gospel that we preach affects our lives. Ladies, the world is watching you to see 
if the gospel that you say is so powerful actually is powerful enough to transform your life? How are they going to see that? Well, they're going to see if you love your husband, if you love your children. They're going to see if you're discreet and pure. They're going to see if you're a kind homemaker who is diligent about doing good for her family. They're going to see if you demonstrate obedience to your husband in your marriage relationship. Richard Lenski said it this way, the world will will to a great extent judge the churches by the character which the gospel produces in the women. That's what Paul seems to be saying here. Our church will be judged in large part by how the women of the church demonstrate godly character. How you behave in church, how you behave at home, how you behave in public will have a powerful impact on the testimony of Jesus Christ. If you neglect your responsibilities, if you give in to ungodly temptations, if you allow the world to set your priorities, There's every reason to believe the word of God will be blasphemed by your neighbors, by your friends, and your family. But I would say the opposite is also true. If you adorn the gospel by a life of love, self-control, purity, and obedience, then the truth will shine through you. Let me just offer, in the time we have left here, a couple of points of application Let me just say this first. This is important. Ladies, your service at home is gospel ministry. Your service at home is gospel ministry. It seems to me, and and this is my observation, but I'm not the only one to observe this. It seems there are many women today who feel like their gifts and their abilities are being squandered. If they don't find themselves in positions of authority and influence in the church and in the world at large. Social media and the internet has given all of us, men and women alike, I would say, the illusion that the importance of a thing is directly related to the number of likes or views or impressions that it generates. But I would say this, this has always been true. It's not just something true in the, in the era of social media and internet technology. It's always been true that we we attach value, we assign value to a thing based on how many people will see it and how many people will take note of it. It's always been the case, just we have this great platform now with digital technology to make that really, you know, easy to to access. We always have a temptation to seek greater influence, to seek a larger following. But ladies, when you love your husband, when you love your children, when you work diligently at home and you pursue stability and purity, you are engaging in gospel ministry. I've told my wife this on a number of occasions, that her greatest mission field is inside the four walls of her home. That doesn't mean that she can't or shouldn't work to share the gospel outside of her home. But it does help to keep our priorities straight. 
Don't diminish the work of being a godly wife and mother. These are gospel duties. We don't have time to do this. Sometime it would be interesting to do this, but I think if we could, could take a survey, I think we'd find that the vast majority of people who are Christians today are Christians because they were led to Christ by someone in their family. The power of our ministry to our own family is very important. And I would suggest to you that's by design. That's what God is saying through his word. That we can pursue, that we should pursue gospel ministry in the home first. And so ladies, don't, don't get these priorities mixed up. The second point of application, I think, concerns the primary attitude that Paul really controls Paul's instructions, and it's this. Ladies, you need to let love abound in your home. And this, again, applies to all. I could start with the older ladies, and I would just say this. If you've raised children, if you've been faithful to your husband, some of you have even become widows, you've loved your husband as you promised, until death. Your home ought to be a model of love and generosity. You know, we have this stereotype of, of an older couple who are constantly bickering and complaining about one another. This shouldn't be found among followers of Christ. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be known within the church. How are you going to teach the young women to love their husbands if you're constantly complaining about your own? How can you love them? How can you teach them to love their children if you don't show them? Not just how to love their children when they're small, but how to love them into adulthood and independence. And this is needed even more today in an era in which we have this idea of emerging adulthood where children take longer and longer to grow up and leave the home and become independent. We need to teach and show how mothers can love their children even through those stages of life. We need a generation of older women in the church who will be examples of love in the home to teach the younger, uh, younger women how to, who are now raising cho- children and frankly even those who are not yet wives and mothers This doesn't start when a woman gets married and all of a sudden, okay, now we'll kick in our our training program. This needs to start at the beginning. When they're children, ladies in the church, you have an opportunity and a responsibility. You can start teaching and training the young girls so they can learn these things now. And let me just say this to those who are young ladies, even the girls who are here today. Commit yourself to God's design for your life. That doesn't mean you can't pursue your gifts and your dreams. But you can't please God by ignoring what he says. So learn to love your husband. Learn to love your children. Learn to make a home for them and to serve them. One Bible teacher put it this way, a young woman who is not willing to make a home for her husband and her family should stay single. Now, I'd like to share something in the, just the last minute here. My Uncle Bob sent me last week. He usually sends corny jokes and stuff 
If you come on Wednesday nights, you hear those sometimes. I share them. But on the weekends, he shares some more meaningful thoughts. And last weekend, he sent this email out. He said, Teresa, that's his wife, is spoiling me rotten. With my leg in a cast and limited mobility and elevated pain, she tells me to stay in my chair and asks me, what can I make you for lunch? We've been married almost 48 years, and she's always been there for me. A Facebook friend posted about wanting ideas for making her hubby more than just sandwiches for lunch every day at work. She was mocked and berated for the simple act of making lunch for her husband. You know, we've reached the end of the dregs of modern feminism when it's now a sin to make your husband a sandwich. This was picked up by Fox News. They reported that she was told she was nothing but a slave and a 1950s housewife. She was weird for demeaning herself to make lunch for her husband. Then it got really angry and hateful. Here are some of the other responses. Your husband is a grown-up and you're not his mother. My husband can make his own blank lunch. I make my husband the same thing he makes me, nothing. Stuff that, hubby is a grown man. I already do his laundry and keep his children alive. Our advice is to stop making his lunches. My role is childcare during working hours, and that's it. He's lucky if I decide to make dinner some nights. <laughs> this next one, get, you gotta listen carefully. <clears throat> I was married for 20 years. And my favorite packed lunch for my husband was called a get it yourself with a side order of I'm not your mother. Was married. It, you know, it's, <laughs> and the last one here is I didn't sign up for that at the altar. Bob says, when I read Teresa these sorts of responses, my wife was amazed and saddened. Working together in a loving partnership is what a happy marriage is all about. I'm so pleased to have a wife who's my companion, who vowed before God in sickness and in health to love and to cherish, and the moral fiber to not cut and run when things got tough. By the way, did I mention she made me a homemade egg salad sandwich for lunch? That took way more work than a couple of slices of bologna and cheese or PB&J. She really loves me, and I really love her. See, understand something. We're not giving women the Titus II treatment. What we're doing this morning is calling you to follow the design of Almighty God from creation. And not only does it work to produce a strong and healthy home where love abounds, but it adorns the gospel of Jesus Christ and it prevents our opponents from having anything to say against us. And it shows a lost and dying world that Jesus truly saves and transforms those who trust in him. Let's close with prayer.